Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're going to talk about the field of family planning. It's not just when do you want to have kids, but it's a whole host of other medical interactions that a lot of young folks and middle-aged folks may want to consider discussing with their providers because there's a lot of great preventative things we can do and also ways that we can avoid sudden unplanned events like expanding your family when maybe you're not ready to do so just yet. So today I am joined by Dr. Now Shantani. I got Shandani. it? Okay. Shantani Raidu. I knew I was going to mess that up. <laughs> Assistant Professor, Division of Family Planning, Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Women's Health at the University of Hawaii, John Burns School of Medicine. You've been there for about four and a half years already. Yes, that's right. You did a family planning fellowship there, and you did other training at Case Western in Cleveland and then also in Iowa. Is that right? Yes, correct. We're happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me here in the studio. So... Family planning. You know, when we first talked about doing this show with one of your colleagues, I kind of just assumed, oh, okay, so when women decide with their significant others, it's time to expand our family, that's when you plan it. And that's not family planning at all. Well, it's a small part of family planning. A small part of it. Okay. When you spent two years learning, what were some of the topics that people may not have had training with if they did a standard, I mean, variable, standard obstetrics gynecology residency. What are some of the focuses that you had for the two-year fellowship that you did? So after my residency in obstetrics and gynecology, which was a four-year training program, um, a two-year fellowship in family planning really focuses on complex contraception, how to provide birth control for people who have medical conditions where maybe some birth control methods are unsafe or having a pregnancy is particularly unsafe for them. And then the other thing that we focus on is how to help people who have unintended pregnancies and need abortion services, um, particularly those who are unwell and may have other medical com complications that um, make additional medical care more risky. Well, and it certainly sounds like there's a lot of ground that you needed to cover in such a short period of time of just two years. And so we're, we're lucky that we have such a specialty here in the islands and that we have that opportunity to ask you some questions about what you do. So, you know, one of the things that I think becomes really important is that, you know, at some point, most people, although maybe not everyone, are sexually active. And when that when that starts, there are some potential risks for exposure to infections, for exposure to potential pregnancy. There are some things that can occur, and the average age where we should start thinking about this is maybe younger than most people do. When do you think that that parents or even people themselves should really start thinking about contraception and ways to protect themselves? Is it ever just, is somebody ever too young or... Honestly, is there an age where we need to start having these conversations? I don't think anyone's ever too young to start having conversations with their children about their bodies and the changes that they're going to go through. Um, obviously, conversations will change depending on um, the ages of children and as they continue to develop. Um, but ideally, we'd like to have 
children come in for a reproductive health visit um, with someone who focuses on family planning and puberty, menstruation, body changes, and things like that um, around sort of the early teens or when they start having questions or concerns about their development. That's the ideal time to begin those conversations, and those sort of change over time as they may progress into being interested in relationships and having sexual relationships. Now, HPV vaccination, that's sort of a good time to kind of maybe initiate a discussion. Human papillomavirus is something that you can get exposed to through sexual activity, and it has been associated as a direct link to causing cancer. So prevention of exposure to that virus is is great and ideal. And immunization against the most common forms of that virus that could lead to consequences is really, it's a great advance in the field of medicine because it's the first time we've been able to prevent cancer with uh, immunization against a virus. Do you find that there's still a lot of controversy about that? Are we not immunizing enough of the people who are eligible at this time? And who's eligible? Mm-hmm. Um, we recommend that children start having the HPV vaccine as young as age nine. And in fact, the um, organization that oversees all immunizations has now extended the um, upper age limit to age 45. It used to be that we only gave them up to age 26. So that's a great opportunity for women who maybe weren't able to get them when they were younger or in their adolescence to be able to get them now because it's never too late even after you've been sexually active or potentially had an HPV infection and had abnormal pap smears um, to be able to get that vaccination and protect yourself against the other strains. We do see um, some resistance still to immunizations. A little bit of that is overall that people are sometimes becoming a little bit more mistrustful of immunizations. But with the HPV vaccine specifically, we often have um, parents and families express concern that it may encourage their children to become sexually active at younger ages. However, a lot of research has been done with children and with their families and about HPV vaccination and the age at which they begin sexual activity. And there is no difference among those who have been vaccinated and those who have not. Um, Considering that cervical cancer is one of the main killers of women, and particularly reproductive age women in the world, um, perhaps not in this country, but globally it it is a huge problem. It is honestly one of the best things that families can choose to do for their young children, and that's for both young girls and for young boys. Well, and I know when it first came out, I was like, darn, I'm over the age of 26 by like 10 years. And then when they extended the age to 45, I'm like, oh, wait, I'm 46 and a half. So I always seem to be out of that window. But I would get that vaccine at any time. I think any vaccination that potentially could prevent an exposure to a virus that might lead to cancer, sign me up. I, I'm, I'm ready to do it. You know, hepatitis B is another type of illness that is viral related. We do know that it can cause problems with the liver and in some rare cases be associated with mm-hmm. cancer. And so, you know, hepatitis B vaccination is now given to infants because that's just seen to be a good thing to do. So there's no real controversy about that. We don't want people to get this hepatitis virus. And so we don't want them to get HPV either. So definitely, if you're eligible, that's something to really talk with your provider about and seriously consider getting that vaccine. Now, let's talk about contraception, because part of what happens 
as boys and girls go through that time of puberty and adolescence is that trying to prevent pregnancy becomes important if they are going to engage in sexual activity. And there are two elements to doing that. One of them is to prevent pregnancy, and the other aspect is to prevent sexually transmitted infections. What are some of the basics of contraception? I mean, a lot of times people think, oh, it's just birth control pills and that protects you against everything. That's kind of a myth. What are some of the common misperceptions about contraception in general? Mm-hmm. Um, I think birth control pills in particular have a lot of um, myths and misperceptions associated with them because they've been around for a long time. But common things that I hear are concerns about weight gain, about mood changes, about um, changes in bleeding patterns, which do occur and should be a part of the counseling that a provider gives to someone when starting them on birth control methods. Um, Other really common things we hear with um, birth control methods like IUDs um, are concerns about infertility or infections. Um, Infertility and infections are typically only caused by um, surgical or um, sexually transmitted infections rather than the IUD itself although um, there tends to be a lot of concern about that. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Shantani Raidu. She is from the University of Hawaii John Burns School of Medicine, and she is an expert in family planning. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the differences between different contraceptives and how long they last and how long they need to be monitored and evaluated. And we're going to talk about some ways to protect people from infections, because that's another aspect that we're going to be discussing today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Shantani Raidu from the University of Hawaii John Burns School of Medicine. She's an assistant professor in the Division of Family Planning, Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Women's Health. And today we're talking about some of the common topics that often come up when we hear about family planning, contraception, sexually transmitted infections, immunizations, HPV. We're going to talk some more about different types of risks in pregnancy in just a few moments. But right before the break, we were talking about the difference in misperceptions that, you know, IUDs often have a reputation for potentially doing things they don't, like causing problems with fertility, but that often is not necessarily the case. Birth control pills, something that may or may not cause additional side effects. And are... Have we, you know, you mentioned birth control has been around for a long time, the the pills in particular. Are there new advances in that? Have we changed what ingredients are in birth control pills over the last several years? Are they safer? Birth control pills have changed a lot over the years. Um, Traditionally, birth control pills have had uh, mostly two types of hormones in them. Um, Over time, as science has progressed, we've been able to lower those doses of hormones so that people have much fewer side effects than they did 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, And we've been able to work it out so that if people 
don't want to have bleeding every month or regular bleeding, that they don't have to. And that's perfectly safe for someone who is on hormonal birth control that is controlling their bleeding patterns. I remember the first time I had, I was in medical school, I think, and I had a patient tell me that they had just kept going with their hormone pills and never did their placebo to have monthly bleeding. And I went, I think that's really a bad idea. And I thought, but it's kind of genius at the same time. Fast forward 10 years, and now there's medicine, there's birth control pills that are specifically designed to do that. So that patient all those years ago was ahead of their time. So yay for them. Now, if you skip the pill, I mean, sometimes people go, what if I don't take it at the same time? What if I miss a dose? Are those concerns that could definitely put them at risk for pregnancy? Definitely. Um, the more irregularity there is with taking your medications, um, the higher the risk of having the unintended consequences, which for most people is an unintended pregnancy. Um, with birth control pills, if someone misses one pill, they should take it as soon as they are able to. Um, but if they miss more than one, they may have to um, use a backup method of birth control. Typically, we recommend something like condoms, which are generally readily available to most people, um, while they get caught up and back on their regular schedule. And would that take a month or maybe more? That takes a few days usually, but it may depend where they are in their birth control cycle and how many pills they've already taken in that particular cycle. So check with their provider. They'll be able to kind of find out where they are in the cycle and help give them further advice. Yes. Now, no matter what you do, whether it be birth control pills or an IUD, that doesn't necessarily protect against sexually transmitted infections. You mentioned condoms. That's a fairly good way to make sure that you don't have exposure. Should... Individuals who are thinking of engaging in a sexual relationship do some sort of testing because sometimes it'll be, I don't have symptoms to you. No, you don't. Okay, we're good. But how accurate is that? The really tricky thing about sexually transmitted infections is that typically people don't have symptoms. And so they don't know that they may have them and are passing them back and forth between the partners that they have and then to subsequent partners that they may have. Um, I strongly recommend that everyone who is considering having a sexual relationship be tested before that starts. And then to have a discussion with a partner, and that can be very difficult to initiate. People are often embarrassed to have conversations about sex. Um, but to start with um, perhaps mentioning that they themselves have been tested and inquiring about their partner's status with respect to the safety they can have within their relationship. So tested for what exactly? Is there like a, a list of this is the basics? Mm -hmm. So the CDC recommends that all people under 25 are tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia at least once a year and maybe more often depending on if they have other partners or are having unprotected sex. Um, and then for people over 25, that may depend on what their relationships are like and whether they're having frequent unprotected sex with various partners. Um, people should also be tested for um, HIV and potentially syphilis and hepatitis. And that kind of depends on the population that you live in and how common those diseases are in that population. And so that's kind of the general list is... Gonorrhea, chlamydia, HIV, syphilis, hepatitis, that's pretty comprehensive, but then it might be varying based on the person's individual risk factors and who they may be engaging in exposure with. Yes. 
Now, if you were to have all those tests done and you were to be to be negative, how often should you do them as part of a routine? Is it something people should do every year? Is it only if they have exposure and or does it depend on their age group? I mean, it just it sounds like for if, if everyone came in every year to do those tests, that would probably be great. We might catch a lot of people who have infections. I don't see that happen in general practice very much, though. Correct. Um, it's uncommon for people to come in pretty regularly. Um, for younger people under the age of 25, we recommend that they are tested every year for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Um, but beyond that, it really depends on someone's relationship. Typically, once someone has entered into a monogamous relationship, they know that they and their partner um, have been tested for STIs and don't have any. Um, they may choose to not be tested for longer periods of time until they may have different partners in the future. What are the tests for gonorrhea and chlamydia? Because sometimes there's a fear element in you're going to put a swab where? So what are the tests for both men and for women that help to indicate if they have had an exposure or have an infection? Mm -hmm. That's a really common thing that we run into is that people are concerned about the test and discomfort with it, and so they choose not to be tested at the time. Um, for women, the test can be done a number of different ways. Um, they can leave a urine sample, and that can be tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia. So they would just leave some urine in a cup, much as they do at many other visits. They could also potentially use a swab, like a Q-tip that they would insert into their own vagina and then put into a little tube that could be tested. And then they may also be tested at the time of a pelvic exam that they may be having for um, a pap smear or cervix cancer screening um, or for looking for any other workup of other concerns that they have. Um, for men, it's as simple as leaving a urine sample, so they too could leave urine in a cup that could then just be tested, and that can typically be done at most of their primary care offices or um, at clinics or facilities that focus specifically on STI testing, like health facilities. And there is a swab that can be done if there are symptoms or if there is another concern, but it can be as easy as a urine sample. Yes, for sure. So... The fact that everybody does urinate means that potentially there's no reason why you would not ever get tested for this if you needed to be. There's like no good excuse. No. Anyone, um, anyone who is concerned could be tested in a very painless fashion. Well, so that, that answers that question. Now, if you do get tested and you, you, everything is all clear and you have no problems and everything goes well, at some point you may decide, hey, it's time we want to consider establishing a family. So part of family planning is dealing with contraception and or avoidance of sexually transmitted infections. And the other part of it is probably looking at pregnancy risk and trying to determine what is the most appropriate decision for someone to make. Are there common reasons why certain pregnancies would be riskier than others and women should have counseling done before they even consider that? Mm -hmm. Anyone who's considering getting pregnant should probably discuss that with their physician first. Um, the goal, even for someone who is otherwise healthy, is to try to make sure they're as healthy as possible when they do get pregnant. That includes things like whether they're smoking, using alcohol, or using other substances, making sure that they're getting enough vitamins, particularly something like folic acid, which is key to developing pregnancies, um, for some amount of time before they actually do get pregnant. 
Um, and then if they have other medical conditions, things like hypertension, diabetes, and um, various other things that we see in, um, in a lot of people, particularly as they're getting older, then the goal should be to try to make those, to try to control those medical conditions as much as possible so that they're as healthy as they can be going into a pregnancy. Many and times with pregnancy, um, blood pressure problems can become more difficult to manage and diabetes can become more difficult to manage. So the healthier someone is at the start, the fewer risks there might be to them and to their pregnancies. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with with Shantani Raidu, a physician of the Family Planning Department of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Women's Health at University of Hawaii John Byrne School of Medicine. When we come back, we're going to talk about what are some of the elements that can help make a pregnancy as healthy as possible for both men and their men who want to make sure that they're supporting their spouses and that they're healthy when pregnancy occurs as well as the women who are carrying the the future child for both of them. Um, we'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Shantani Raidu, and she is a professor of family planning for the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Women's Health at University of Hawaii John Byrne School of Medicine. And right before the break, we were talking about, you know, men need to be healthy as well if they're going to want to be part of a pregnancy with a significant other. They also need to have certain medical conditions taken care of not smoking, not drinking, keeping blood pressure good, keeping sugars down. There are risks both for the woman who's carrying the pregnancy, but also for the man who is part of that whole process as well in getting pregnant. Are there medical conditions that make men less likely to be able to have children? There are, um, particularly things that impact their blood vessels. So someone who has um, high blood pressure that isn't well controlled or diabetes that has progressed to having complications. Um, there are also various genetic things that may make it more difficult for a man to be able to successfully become pregnant with their partner. And in certain cases, people even need to go and see a fertility specialist. For general younger people, maybe below the age of 35, if they don't get pregnant as they would expect to, and they're generally healthy and they've they've done everything correct with with their ex taking their right medications keeping their medical conditions under control how long should they wait before they start thinking about fertility mm -hmm. for couples who are under 35 and are having regular unprotected sex um, we, re we recommend that they try for about a year before then seeking um, assistance from a fertility specialist for people who are over 35, where we know that they may be a little bit less likely to get pregnant on their own, um, we recommend that they try on their own for about six months and then seek the assistance of a fertility specialist. And is there something about 
either men or women around the age of 35 that changes the statistical likelihood that they may be able to to have a pregnancy? Mm-hmm. Um, so 35 for women in particular was sort of picked based on some pretty old studies that looked at um, pregnancies and menstrual cycles in large groups of women in Europe a long time ago. So they may not necessarily be very reflective of the populations that we are taking care of right now or the people that we see. Um, But we know that with age in general, people develop other medical conditions or they may have other things happening in their body that may impact their fertility or make them a little bit less likely to conceive. Um, The other thing that may happen for women in particular once they are um, 35 or older is they have a slightly higher chance of having um, chromosome abnormalities with a pregnancy. And that, therefore, could lead to their body not carrying the pregnancy to term or for other situations that you, if you could avoid encountering, you might want to. Genetic risks for a variety of different major medical conditions. Yes. Now, in this situation, if you have already gotten pregnant when you were younger and then you have a long span of time between your first pregnancy and choosing to get pregnant again, Is it more likely that you'll be able to if you've previously carried a child to term, or does that not really matter if you're over the age of 35? You already have the potential risk that it may not be successful because of these chromosomal issues or or decreased number of eggs that are available that could potentially be a pregnancy. Is there any other way that that factors into it? Mm -hmm. If someone's had a pregnancy before and been able to successfully carry that pregnancy and have a delivery at the end, um, that usually tells us that many things structurally inside their body are working pretty well. And so oftentimes if they're unable to be pregnant, it may be other factors. It may be whether they are ovulating or producing an egg regularly enough. Um, And if in that time since their last pregnancy they have had surgeries or infections or other things um, on their reproductive organs, that can certainly impact their ability to become pregnant in the future also. Now, I have to ask you because, you know, the news blows me away sometimes. How old, and this is a weird question, but there there are reports of women in their 70s giving birth through IVF that to me just sounds like that's just so abnormal and not healthy and not appropriate. At what age should women consider that pregnancy may not be the best for their health? Is there like a a time? Is it if you're over a certain age, it's probably not good for the rest of your body? It's a very individualized. Um, we have some women who are at the age of menopause, around the age of 50, who are extremely healthy and who are considering having pregnancies. And we have other women who are in their early 20s who are who have many medical conditions that could make pregnancies very risky for them and when we would not recommend that. So it's a very individualized um, concern. Which I guess would allude to why someone might want to discuss this with their primary care provider or with their obstetrics gynecologist or find some way that they could at least get some of their questions answered about their own personal status. Because you're right, there are some medical conditions that make pregnancy not an option. And that would be something you would want to know about. If you were choosing to go down that path, you'd really need to be concerned about contraception and birth control at that point. Are there any common things that you see in your office that would make pregnancy sort of not not a good plan? Mm-hmm. 
Um, one of the things that we encounter most commonly is people who've had um, health conditions since they were very, very young, sometimes since birth, um, who've maybe never come in to see a reproductive health specialist and then may end up pregnant when they didn't intend to be because they were never talked to about contraception and didn't know that the heart condition or the lung condition or the brain condition that they have would make a pregnancy really risky. Um, so really one of the ideal things is for everyone to be able to have access to family planning as early as they can and as part of their regular medical care if they have other medical conditions. And if people wanted to come and see you, they would talk to their providers, they would talk to their OBGYN or their primary care doctor, and they could get a referral. They could definitely do that. All right. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. That is Dr. Shantini Raidu, and she is the Assistant Professor, Division of Family Planning at the De Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at John Byrne School of Medicine. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and we will be right here next week when we talk more about health topics right here on The Body Show. Woo!